0: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking.
1: You know, Marco Polo was something of a medieval rock star when he traveled from Europe to China on the Silk Road, even though if you look at his stuff, it, he was pretty dismissive of people and places along the way. And Kate Harris didn't think this was right. So she retraced his 10,000 kilometer route by bike. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today I talked to Kate Harris, writer, scientist, and extreme cyclist, at least I would call her an extreme cyclist, about the trip she made with her friend Mel tracing Marco Polo's route across Central Asia and Tibet. This journey is the subject of Harris's new book, Lands of Lost Borders, A Journey on the Silk Road, newly released from Knopf in Canada, where it is already, by the way, a top 10 book for 2018. Kate Harris, thank you for talking with me today.
2: Oh, I'm delighted to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me.
1: So could you talk about your first trip to Asia in 2006? Tell us a little bit about where you were in life and and, uh, why you decided to to go and where you went.
2: Sure, yeah. So in in 2006... um, I had just graduated from university, um, and my friend and I, my friend Melissa, who's a, a big character in my book, decided uh, we would bike the Silk Road. We had four months of summer holiday available to us, and I had managed to get this summer travel grant through my university that would enable enable this kind of trip. And I basically pitched it as as following in the footsteps of Marco Polo, and what I didn't Elaborate to the travel grant committee, but um, my underlying motivation for this journey was I was really Marco Polo was a fallen hero to me at that point. You know, I grew up mm-hmm. kind of admiring his travels and and really worshiping him from a, a kid's perspective. Like he just seemed this glamorous, romantic explorer figure. Then, um, at least from the you know children's books I read about him.
0: Mm-hmm. But
2: when I was at university, I read the the fuller edition of his travels the unabridged edition and was kind of heartbroken to find out he was more of a merchant than a um a romantic I guess
1: yeah and Mm.
2: so we wanted to set off and bike through some of the places he most detested along the Silk Road which were the places that interested me the most you know the mountains Uh and deserts everything in between the really fabled trading hubs So that was the motivation for our our trip. And um, we'd done one previous bike trip together. And I explained this in the book, but it was kind of a fluke, the order in which it happened. Um, We biked across the U.S. because Mel got hit by a boat when we were supposed to leave for China for our Silk Road bike ride. Um, Uh So we had to postpone the Silk Road trip. But we biked across the U.S., which was a really good warm-up because it meant we actually knew how to fix a flat tire by the time we did real (laughs) Silk Road.
1: Right. And, you, uh, and it was on that first trip that you entered Tibet and saw the, how do you pronounce this? The Sishin Glacier?
2: Yeah. Um, I I always pronounce it as Siachin, and then I heard an, an Indian yeah. person pronounce it, and they said Siachin. So
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, I'm probably doing it wrong, but I, I've always in my head read it as Siachin, but I think it's Siachin.
1: That becomes a an important place for you and how you think about the, the next, the upcoming trip after that.
2: That's right. Yeah. So we biked, we snuck into Tibet in 2006, um, like literally snuck under a guardrail railing in the cover of night. And it all turned out to be quite unnecessary. Our stealth tactics were not called for at that point, but um, we, we managed to get in to Tibet. And in the process, we biked through this borderland area called the Aksai Chin. And this is um, up against India And it's contested territory even today with India, although China is in sort of de facto control of it. And the road we were biking on through this remote, far-flung corner of um, Western Tibet was the road that provoked a war between, a brief war between India and China over this territory. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't know much of this background during the trip. I mean, I saw a lot of military convoys when we were out there and it was very clearly not not your usual tourist track, I guess. <laughs> um, but it, when I came back from that trip, I had the chance to study the history of science at Oxford, and mm-hmm. I started looking into that corner of Tibet. And in looking into it, it learned it was such a contested borderland. And in the process, noticed that just across the border into um, India and, and Pakistan was this other highly contested borderland that is this glacier, the Siachen Glacier. So that, that's what sparked the the intrigue.
1: So this was interesting to me when I read it, because, uh, you talk in your book about how, how important, really almost fundamental to who you are, this idea of, of travel and new experiences. And yet at the same time, you've got this, um, these kind of stated goals for these expeditions, one to kind of retrace Marco Polo's journey, this other to look at borders and uh, their effect on, um, on, you know, influencing wildlife. And uh, you have actually a really cool quote, if I can find it here. Uh, I wanted to bike the Silk Road as a practical extension of my thesis at Oxford to study how borders make and break what is wild in the world. That's a beautiful line. Thank you. So what do you think the, the chicken and the egg here is? Uh, is it that you really wanted to go to, uh, to Asia and, and bike the Silk Road and then kind of found a, a motive to do it? Or was it the motive that drove, drove the expedition and the kind of experiences that you have kind of are the watershed of that?
2: Right. That's a great question. I, I think because I, you know, I traveled first in the world vicariously, you know, it was through words. It was through reading books as a kid Mm -hmm. um, that I really felt this thirst to see the world myself um, reading about other people's journeys in it, especially their, their wild journeys. Um, So I, I guess probably the reading sparked the idea to go myself and also kind of the sort of questions I wanted to explore in the travels um but certainly a mix of both i mean if i ha- if we hadn't snuck into tibet on that first trip and and traveled through this this weird borderland that you know borders that exist to some people and not to others and country of like conflicting claims um i don't know that i would have gone off to grad school after that and really honed in on, on borderlands is what I wanted. Yeah. So definitely they feed each other like words in the world, sort of this yeah. back and forth.
1: I, I feel oftentimes with projects, um, I probably shouldn't announce this publicly, should I? But like <laughs> uh, I, I become very interested in something because it's interesting and then I reverse engineer a reason why I should do, it, <laughs> uh, or or study it. And um, yeah. so I was just curious about it. But yeah, but I can see how the two uh, feed each other in in your text. And and in fact, you do really give us some interesting pictures of these of these borderlands. And it, there's a kind of paradox to them, uh, the way that you talk about them as 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 these structures that keep people out, but in some cases actually kind of protect and maintain natural areas. Could you talk about that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think a quality of being young and, you know, a lot of this book is, is you know, is it my twenties when I was doing these trips? Um, you know, you, you sort of have these black and white, very idealistic notions about how the world works or should work. Um, and in reading so much about Borders and borderlands and all their negative impacts and constricting effects on people and places and wildlife. Um, I kind of set off on the Silk Road with a bit of a vendetta against against borders. <laughs> um, and there's nothing like travel to really force you to reconsider your 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 black and white, you know, and see the gray in yeah. between. And and along the way, we visit a whole bunch of different borderlands and and. Saw a few examples where borders are perversely protecting landscapes and and wildlife in a way that um, if those you know barbed wire fences didn't exist, um, these places would be impoverished in a biodiversity sense. Which is not to downplay mm-hmm. the like horrible impacts on on people's lives that these borders can have. But you know, one example of this was the border between Turkey and Armenia, and it's this. Canyon, um, it's running through the Canyon is the river, um, formerly known as the Araxes to the the Greeks, I guess. Um, and mm-hmm. this Canyon used to be, you know, you can look down into it and see the ruins of bridges. Like as, mm-hmm. as recently as a century ago, people could just walk across this river and, and move freely between what is now, um, Eastern Turkey and Western Armenia. And then this, this border was, thrown down and it's been banned to human entry for, um, decades now. And in that, that interim, this Canyon, um, became the sort of inadvertent wildlife sanctuary and Egyptian vultures, which are an endangered wow. threatened species are, are nesting in this Canyon because people can't go there so that it's a refuge. Um, and the, the DMZ between North and South Korea is an, another example of this, um, which i I'd, I'd read about, you know, I'd studied it on on paper when I was um, a mm-hmm. grad student at Oxford, but but actually seeing this play out in front of your your eyes is, is another thing entirely.
1: Yeah. So what I really um, like about your book and it's it's a, it's a really interesting mixture of your different interests in exploration. I mean, in a sense, I think you wear a lot of different hats. Um, you're a student of exploration, you know, you studied that at Oxford, then you went to work at MIT, uh, for your PhD studies. Is that, yeah. Correct? And, in and, and was that in astrobiology?
2: It, that was my interest. Technically the program was, uh, geobiology.
1: Geobiology. Yeah. And then, at, and at the same time, and I know this from when I first met you about eight years, must've been eight yeah. years ago. And you said, oh, I just read this Annie Dillard piece and you have to read it. Uh, and I think it was on the North Pole. Yes.
2: Expedition to the Pole. That's yeah. right.
1: And so I, I know that you're also very much a student of of, uh, of literature and travel literature. And I was just wondering how you, I don't know, how do you find your voice in all that when you're, in two ways, I guess. One, when you're traveling, what's the voice that's going through your head? Um, and two, how do you end up writing about it? Um, and I'll just, I'll make this question even longer <laughs> by 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 saying that um, when I travel, this is always a question for me because I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to be present in the moment, and you know, simultaneously, I'm thinking about it like a you know, as like a writer.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, essentially, this was the first, the sort of long bike ride on the Silk Road was the first trip I set off on explicitly planning to write about it, um, in part because I'd quit my PhD at MIT and had no future other than <laughs> <laughs> if and when I could, could actually turn writing into a, not a career exactly, but something that would keep me going. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I kept elaborate notes during the trip. And at first I was really, really diligent about writing down, you know, every detail the day in and day out of what we were seeing and doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I, I sort of realized along the way that it was an exhausting amount of detail and you can't, I didn't want to write a trip that was about the day to day. Like I wanted to weave in bigger ideas about exploration historically and, and, you know, what it means in the modern world that's, Far more mapped and tamed. Um, and I wanted to weave in literature, uh, sort of all my my different obsessions in life that that make the world interesting to me. And so I knew, you know, it wasn't going to be like day one, we biked here, we ate this. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I started yeah. being a little more, you could call it lazy on one hand or um, practical on the other. And just sort of jotting down like what, what moments really were, what, what came alive to me on the Silk Road, you know, what, yeah. what sort of images and, and metaphors, what what and what I was reading as I biked the Silk Road caught my attention because we you have a wonderful amount of time to read on a bike trip because you can only bike so many hours of a day. And so I tried to keep notes that were, they were much more fragmentary, much more evocative, you know, how the light looked in these trees and yeah. you know, what, 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 the birds were doing, and what I was hearing, um, and so yeah, I came back, and I still had a, an enormous amount of material to try and work up into the book. Um, but in the end, it was those sort of glimmerings along the road that that brought the writing alive. And the writing was just a process of eliminating, 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 yeah, Paring down that's- to you know what specific scenes and what specific moments and encounters and, and musings in your mind um bring the the trip alive to someone else who wasn't actually on it but who wants to go on that that emotional and intellectual journey
1: yeah um i'm actually. i wonder since you're talking about your writing if you wouldn't mind uh reading a passage for for us it's um it's from your journey through georgia i believe yes do you mind uh reading an ex- excerpt from that you bet. And actually, probably you, if you could set up the scene. Yeah,
2: sure. So we're in Georgia, um, right on the border of of uh, Azerbaijan and Russia in this national park called Lagodaki. And we've been there for a few days and nothing really makes any sense to us. We, You know, there's a language barrier. There's just a lot that is really hard to read between the lines of when you're a foreigner in a, a foreign land. So we've been trying to talk to as many people as we can in this in this park to figure out like how does it work with conservation across borders, how do people how do people exist here? Um, mm-hmm. so the passage as follows. So what do you people do here for a living, I'd asked. I'm not sure, he'd confessed with the helpless, homesick look. This was a Peace Corps volunteer. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it was the clearest answer we'd heard yet. It was certainly the most honest response he could have given. For other than exposing the obvious differences between a foreign land and wherever you're from, the way the Polish explorer noticed a peony growing in Georgia and nowhere else, travel reveals less about the truth of a place and hints more at how complicated the world is, how reeling and inscrutable.
1: Thank you uh, for reading that. I think, uh... One reason I really like that passage is I think it kind of digs at a a, dile- a dilemma of exploration or a dilemma of travel between, uh, going deep and going broad. Um, you know, are you going to learn a place by living in a place for a number of years or are you going to try to learn by, by traveling through? And here it feels to me like you're kind of acknowledging that, uh, that there's a kind of ignorance about travel too yeah. because you're moving through things, landscapes and, and seeing people so quickly. So, so how do you, I don't know, how do you process that?
2: Yeah. This is something I thought about so much on the trip. Cause you really, you know, you're just skimming the surface and um, you know, it takes a certain arrogance in a way, which I hope I've not indulged in too much, But but to write about places where you're, you're a stranger, you don't know, really how how things work or who people are you have these sort of glancing impressions um and it's it's what makes it travel incredibly exciting because it's all new it's all unknown but it it also makes it frustrating because you you know you're just just kind of not getting to the depths that you would get to if you could actually talk to people in their own language or spend longer longer periods in a place and I'll always love this kind of travel. You know, the just kind of mm-hmm. whizzing through a place. If whizzing is a word that can apply to bicycle travel. <laughs> but, uh, um, but I, I'm definitely more drawn now to, to lingering and, and getting to know the neighborhood on a deeper level. It's partly what I love about my day-to-day life um, in Canada's North. You know, I live in this tiny cabin in, in a tiny community and all around us is is wilderness mountains and forests and wildlife and an ice field, and there's such joy in sort of the the deeper kind of travel you can do in a place that you you're not the thing moving. the world is moving around you, and it's noticing uh-huh. those changes and those um, differences from from day to day and season to season. that's another kind of travel, and one I'm increasingly addicted to. Uh, and I think yeah I definitely want to keep a mix in my life but you can get different things from each sort of version of quote exploration
1: yeah I I sometimes think of um, exploration as being on this continuum people are heading out into the world uh, to figure out the world and then people heading out into the world to figure out themselves right and uh, I think you know Probably, if you look at uh, at most expeditions or or even just travel experiences, they're some somewhere on that continuum. And it reading your book, it's very interesting because it seems like there are these these moments of exhilaration are most attached to you understanding yourself or living in that moment or seeing something kind of anew, as you said in this uh, what is exploration, but. But seeing the world um, anew, and yet this life that you're telling me about now is a kind of different, different life. Or uh, if it, you know, you're 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 in one place. There was another line that I really liked. You were uh, quoting Joan Didion, who said, "We tell ourselves stories in order to live." And uh, so I was just wondering, has that story changed
2: for yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I think if it weren't changing, or if it's you know, if it if it became one story that I'm sticking with the rest of my life, I'd be pretty sad. Uh, part of the joy of, of life is, is following the different stories your life becomes. And um, you know, the, the story I needed to live when I was a kid was that I, I could become an astronaut and go to Mars because that was the last frontier left that, that a human being could conceivably mm-hmm. kind of walk around on and plant a flag you know, for someone as I was who wanted to be an explorer in a, in a pretty historic understanding of the word, um, that's, that was the story I needed because I looked around at the world and it looked awfully paved over and, and fenced and full of subdivisions from what I could see in the small town where I grew up. Um, and then as I got older, you know, that, that, that story has definitely changed, you know, you, you sort of, at least I have. I, I just fall deeper and deeper into love with this planet, however sort of flawed and and compromised it might be. Um, I I really feel like my loyalties are are here, and there's so much to explore. You know, it's a, it's a really uh-huh. um, naive read on on novelty to think that you have to be the very first person to do something or see something or feel something. For that feeling, or or sight, or experience to be worthwhile, like that's absurd. And mm-hmm. you know, I write in the book about how like the most powerful experiences available to us as human beings, alive for this brief period of time on this planet in the middle of nowhere in a vast universe, um, you know, they're not amenable to to maps. Like no one, no one else can explore for you, um, just because someone's been to the peak of Everest before doesn't mean you climbing up there isn't one of the most powerful experiences you can, you could have in your lifetime. Um, and maybe not Everest, it's a bit too crowded, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I I'm really convinced that that exploration is not something that, that like an elite few do in remote places that are hard to get to. Um, it's really an attitude you can apply to your, your daily life, um, just bringing a sense of wonder to the world around you. So that's, I guess that's my story now. We'll see what it is in a decade.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting to see how the young, your, your younger self, you know, gets annoyed at uh, Charles Darwin and uh, Marco Polo for, for kind of lacking the the sufficient wonder in the, the coolness of the world. Uh, and, uh, and it's also kind of neat that I think as a, as a younger person you were interested in kind of re- doing a redo <laughs> of uh of polo's journey yeah. it it reminded me a little bit just in in let's say in um approach to you know alexander von humboldt Oh, yeah. he, uh when he was traveling to the new world you know he wasn't really going anywhere that hadn't been either known by native americans for thousands of years or by europeans for hundreds right. of years and yet, uh, in a sense, he was rediscovering it or creating a new vision of it, which was really, you know, neither like the old European version or or the indigenous version. It was this this new creation. So I think that's kind of a cool, you know, way to yeah. look at it.
2: Yeah, um, like traveling into old lands with new questions. Like that—that that is yeah. as close to exploration as, as one could hope to get.
1: So, what do you see uh, as your next project? What What are you looking at? Well,
2: I my latest sort of love affair is with the the sky. Um, I'm learning how to fly. It's always been a dream of mine. You know, since I I looked up at, at the stars and wanted to be an astronaut, um, flight was a, a big part of that. You know, I looked at what astronauts did, even when they were back on Earth, and it was oh, well, they got to fly planes and you know, scuba dive and go on survival, wilderness survival courses in Siberia. And, um, so in a way, I, I think I'm trying to piece together a life that, that is, has those elements. Um, and flight is definitely a theme that, that runs through the book, you know, the relationship between bicycles and early airplanes and then early airplanes and missions to the moon. Um, and yeah, I've I've never really had the 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 time or, or space to to get my private pilot's license, but that's what I'm I'm working on now. And I love it. I love it. Like there's the feeling of lifting off from the earth. Hmm. And you know, it's it's all under your own power exactly, but you're you're at the controls and you're suddenly moving in with six degrees of freedom over a world that you you've never seen this way before. Despite a million transatlantic commercial flights, and um, yeah, I, I just mm-hmm. love it. And it's challenging in a sort of technical way, which which appeals to the scientific side of me. And you know, I love, I just love learning new systems and, and theories. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the sort of part of me that just likes adventure and seeing things from a different point of view. Um, it's it's thrilling for that too especially flying in the canadian north or mountain around mountains and yeah. lakes and ice fields um so i don't really know where that's going you know i I've, I've never i've never had much of a plan beyond sort of what i can see on the horizon other than sort of themes that i i think mm-hmm. will be consistent through my life which I, you know wandering wondering about things and and writing about them so i'm sure it'll it'll show yeah. up in my writing somehow um and then the other adventure is just living off the grid in sort of a little spaceship of a cabin where you you know you have to make mm-hmm. sure you have enough energy coming in and um, you have water to, to manage and all the life support systems that <laughs> are kind of we take advantage of or take for granted in, in more uh, sophisticated <laughs> buildings and places. So I'm, I'm just loving being a homesteader.
1: You, that uh, that sounded very much like a uh, Martian-like statement <laughs> yeah. to uh, be self-sufficient and know the amount of energy coming in as the amount yeah. It's great. Well, uh, Kate Harris, thanks so much for uh, talking with me oh, today. Oh, it was my
2: great pleasure, Michael. Thank you.
1: That's it for today. Next week, I talk to Jane Hooper about trade and travel on the Indian Ocean in the 1600s, which is the subject of her new book, Feeding Globalization. The music for Time to Eat the Dogs was composed by Zabrat. If you'd like to recommend a guest or offer an opinion, feel free to email me at time to eat the dogs, that's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. And please rate the show and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It's really one of the best ways of reaching new listeners who might be interested in the show. See you next week.